Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Forget fad diets, what should we be eating? And does this need to change as we get older? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Jess Grieger, Research Fellow looking at nutrition and health during pregnancy. Hi. Paula Moynihan, Professor and Expert in Nutrition, Sugar and Healthy Teeth. Hi. Lenka Malik, Research Fellow investigating how and why we make the decisions we do around food. Hi. Leonie Heilbron, Associate Professor and Expert in the relationship between nutrition and our metabolism. Hi. Hi. We're constantly bombarded by different advice and the problems of a poor diet like obesity, heart disease and cancer. But how do we eat well and how does this change as we get older? Is sugar really the demon it's made out to be and protein the saviour? So Jess, I'm going to start with you. So um, let, let's start at early childhood. Uh, so it all starts with babies then, does it? It doesn't quite start with babies, in, in my view anyway. So my focus is on uh, pregnancy. So particularly during the early pregnancy, pre-pregnancy phase, it's really important for women and their partners as well to eat a good quality diet. So at the moment, we're looking to eat across the five core food groups. So lean protein, oily fish, whole grains, fish, dairy, and foods like that, really trying to consume an, an energy um, rich, nutrient rich diet and that's going to go a long way towards a healthy mum and a healthy baby. And you know, actually some of our research has shown um, that um, women who consumed um, hardly any fruit at all, but lots of fast food, they had high rates of infertility. So it took them a lot longer to get pregnant. And some of our other research has also shown that, you know, better quality diets associate with less likelihood of delivering like a, a baby that's born too early. So yeah, it really shows that we need to have a good quality diet um, before pregnancy, um, if possible, to support um, yeah, mum and baby. So it's a bit like running a marathon, you've got to prepare and get your body ready uh, for that pregnancy period. Absolutely. So, so how long before would you, uh, or you should be eating healthy all the time, we know that, yeah. but uh, how long before you're going to have a baby should you really start preparing? That's one of the tricky things because about up to 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So it's really only during pregnancy that they find out that they're pregnant. So, But if you can aim to have a, a good quality diet, you know, in the one month to three months prior to pregnancy, when you're planning a pregnancy, that's, um, that's really ideal deal. And you mentioned that the partner has a role as well with a healthy diet. How does, how does that come into it? What, what, what role do men play? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, poor behaviours in men that do affect um, the health of the baby as well. And unfortunately, to date, there's not a lot of research about diet quality in men. So, you know, that's a, that's a good direction that we really need to take forward um, in our research and looking at the combination of um, the men and women and how their, you know, their combined diet impacts um, pregnancy health. So yeah, we need a lot more research, but for them, still a good quality diet as well. So it's, it's standard advice, really. It's uh, not too much uh, fat, not too much sugar, good amounts of fruits and vegetables, uh, lean meat, good protein sources. Absolutely. All, you know, there's no, there's no uh, magic bullet here. It's a, it's a healthy, balanced diet that we're looking to establish. Exactly, that's right. And really trying to limit or um, reduce our intake of those discretionary foods, which are the foods that fall outside of the core food group. So cakes, chips, muesli oh. bars, pastries, and you know, all those sorts of foods. So yeah, so really. So there's sometimes foods that we right. can have, but uh, shouldn't live sometimes. off. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, that's Good. right. So, uh, so sugar. So, Paul, is, is sugar really, really that bad? Because I've just heard I can't eat cakes and chocolate, <laughs> which uh, is really bad. But uh, how, how bad is sugar? Let's, let's go into that a little bit. 
Well, sugar isn't good for you. Yeah. Um, Let's should, make it clear. Yeah. Okay. It sugar isn't good isn't for you. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we should be restricting our intake. Um, and it's especially important in childhood. Um, we see that almost one in three Australian children are overweight or obese. And around 40% of 12-year-olds have got decay to their teeth, despite the fact it's totally preventable. And it's sugar that causes these conditions. Um, and so we see, um, when we look at discretionary foods, that children are getting about 40% of their calories from discretionary foods. These are the things that are high in sugars and fats. Yet only 3% of Australian children get the daily service of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So my research looks, has looked at sugars and oral health, and we worked with the WHO to synthesise all the evidence out there relating the amount of sugar that we eat to the health of our teeth. And we found very good evidence that limiting sugar to less than 10% of calories would lead to fewer dental caries, even if you've got fluoride in the water, which we know is, is great for teeth. Yeah. Um, but we went on and found that if sugars was restricted to less than 5% of calories, there'd be further benefits. And to put that into context, 10% of calories for an adult is about 12 level teaspoons and 5% is about six level teaspoons. So <laughs> it's not a great lot. So we don't have to totally exclude all our favorite foods, but we certainly need to restrict them. Yeah, and the, I mean, there are sugars in all the foods that we consume, aren't there? But it's this available sugar that's the problem. Is, is that right? Well, there are sugars in a lot of foods, but the, the type of sugars that we need to restrict, the, the WHO terms them as free sugars. So okay, those are yeah. all, the, all the sugars that are added to food, whether in the home, by the, the manufacturer, and also it includes all the sugars that we get in fruit juices, honey, syrups, agave, nectar, and all those sort of alternative sweeteners. So it's those we need to restrict, but we shouldn't be restricting whole fruits and vegetables. We really need every single age group across the life course to consume more of those. But not fruit juice because that turns it into a free sugar uh, it sauce, does, does yeah. It? yeah. So um, I think that a small glass of fruit juice a day can make a, a useful contribution to your fruit and veg intake, but don't drink gallons of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Lenka, let's uh, go. So we've heard a little bit about the early stages uh, of life, uh, good, uh, good nutrition, low sugars, uh, particularly for uh, healthy teeth and that development. But, uh, you know, as you move into becoming a teenager and moving into early adulthood, uh, choice is, is a critical issue. So uh, my son, age 13, decided he wanted to become vegetarian and uh, we supported that choice. But uh, as, you know, what, what, what drives, what's driving those, those choices and those, those changes, particularly in relation uh, to diet. Yep, so um, you know, as we all know, everyone's different and likes different foods. And um, so in, I think it's okay if you have different dietary preference and choose to include different foods in your diet, as long as they fit within the five core food groups that just mentioned. Um, and so one of, you mentioned vegetarian diets. So one of the um, things that we find today is that there's this growing interest in meat reduction and in exploring alternative protein foods. And uh, yeah. So where does that come from? Why, why are we seeing that trend in, in meat reduction? Yep, so yeah. we've looked at in our research, we've looked at the different factors that are motivating um, vegetarian diets. Um, so those are diets that um, don't include meat and also vegan diets. So they're the diets that don't include any animal products. And then we've also looked at people that are just reducing their meat consumption, but still including it every now and again. Um, so those are, you might've heard the term flexitarians. 
Um, and so we find that the main reasons that are driving those dietary preferences, they're quite similar. Um, like if you look at the top four reasons, yep. there are three factors that consistently appear and those are health, animal welfare and environmental impact. But what you find is that with those different dietary preferences, different reasons um, are at the top of the list. So for flexitarians, their number one concern is health. So about 60% of flexitarians say that they're reducing their meat because of health reasons. So remind me again, so a flexitarian is somebody yep. that really aims to reduce meat, not yep. eliminate meat. From yeah, their diet. Yep. so yep. they're yep. consciously reducing their meat consumption, but not excluding it altogether. So they're either yep. reducing it or limiting it. So mainly for health reasons, somebody yep. becomes flexitarian. Yes, yep. It's a difficult thing to, to claim on a, when you go out for dinner, though, that you're a flexitarian. I guess you just choose. Yes. So uh, <laughs> I like the term vegetarian with benefits for okay. flexitarians because, yeah. you know, you can have those meaty benefits every now yeah. and again. A bit of fish now and then and uh, yeah. a bit of meat because, uh, you know, nutritionally, of course, meat is, is a good source of nutrition. Yes, yep. Yeah. And we find actually the problem um, when people talk about problems with meat consumption, it's often the overconsumption of meat and the consumption of processed meat products. So things like sausages, ham, bacon, salamis. So they um, we actually, when you look into the meat food group, um, you find that those foods, even though people see them as meat, they're not included in there. They're in the discretionary food group, and that's because they tend to be high in fat, um, high in salt, and you know don't provide as many of the good nutrients that the other foods in the meat group provide. Yeah. Yeah. And when we dug a bit deeper and looked at, so of the flexitarians that say that they're reducing meat for health reasons, when we look at what types of health benefits they try and get from food, we find that about 40% of them say that they're trying to either manage their weight or to lose weight. And then it's other things like energy, um, their digestive health and their heart health that they're trying to get benefits from food. And have, you, have you seen a big increase in people turning flexitarian? Is it um, really a trend or is it just a, a minority issue? Oh, actually, um, we consist, so we've been doing um, surveys for the past couple of years, either every quarter or every six months. And that surveys of the Australian population representative in terms of gender, age and where people live. And we find that about 20% of Australian adults say that they, they identify as flexitarians or part-time vegetarians is another term for it. Okay. Yeah. Whereas um, the proportion of um, vegetarians and vegans is much smaller. So we have about 4% of vegetarians yep. and 2% of vegans. So collectively, we have about 6% of Australians that are meat avoiders. Yeah. Yeah, but we find that when we... Meat avoidance. <laughs> yeah, so, yep, yep. yeah. Um, but when you look at the flexitarians and how long they've been eating this way, reducing their meat consumption, we find that about 60% of them have only chosen to go this way in the last five years. And it's similar for vegans. Yeah. But vegetarians, it's only about a quarter that have become vegetarian in the last five years. So it seems like um, flexitarians and vegans, they're growing at a similar rate and much higher than vegetarians. Yeah. So I don't think vegans will, you know, overtake flexitarians anytime soon because they're starting from quite a low base. So I, I had a, uh, I did a podcast with Jack Cowan from Hungry Jacks. Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, So with a new Rebel Burger uh, that's mm -hmm. out and definitely targeting flexitarians mm -hmm. rather than vegetarians or vegans because they considered a minority group. But the flexitarians is the, is a new growing group yeah, uh, that's yeah. coming up. So so uh, then, uh, hang on, so uh, so flexitarians, it's mainly health. Mm -hmm. What about the choice for vegetarians and vegans? You, you indicated that there were some different yep. uh, reasons underlying those choices. Um, so for vegetarians, they're 
for most of them it's animal welfare reasons and then um, also is health and environmental impact. And then for vegans, um, they have about 60% of vegans say either um, environmental impact, so they have environmental impact first, like front of mind, and then it's animal welfare and health. Animal welfare and health, yep. 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 So um, if, if you're uh, wanting to reduce your meat consumption or cut it out altogether, what, what are then your other protein options? Because uh, you still need protein as a, yep. a, a good part of your diet. So what, what else can you explore then yep. if you're seeking those, those pathways? Yep. So you don't always have to go towards the new plant-based products that are coming onto the market. Pretty trendy at the moment, yeah, aren't they? Yep. There's actually <laughs> been a five-fold increase in the plant-based meat substitutes in the last five years. But often, um, so one of the issues with those products is that there was research done that looked at the new products that were introduced onto the market in the last five years and they found that um, only a quarter of those products were fortified or had vitamin B12 added to them and that's one of the nutrients that are generally only found in animal foods. So the problem then becomes that if people are cutting meat from their diet and replacing it with these other products, you want those other products to have similar nutrients to what meat provides. Um, so they also found that um, only about 20% of the new plant-based meat substitutes have as much iron and zinc as meat products. So they're falling short of matching the nutritional content of meat products. So before you go down that path, you've really got to understand your nutrition and where you're getting those yeah. essential nutrients yeah. Yeah. from, which include a range of amino acids, a range mm -hmm. of vitamins and... Uh, yeah, so yeah. in general whole foods that yeah. um, are a good source of protein and iron and zinc in your diet, they're um, foods like um, beans, peas and lentils, so your legumes. Then there's also dairy products and eggs that you can rely on for protein and also some grain foods, so things like quinoa, amaranth, and some of those ancient grains, they also tend to be good sources of protein and some of those micronutrients. Yeah, but, it, but it's a change that's probably here to stay, and uh, we're going to have more flexible meat-eating options, I think, for yeah, the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, Leonie, I'd like to bring you in on the conversation mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, we hear quite a bit about, uh, about fasting uh, and about the benefits uh, of fasting. The, uh, the 5-2 uh, fasting diet is uh, becoming increasingly popular now. So is it a fad or is it actually uh, a, good, a good option to look at? Uh, for improving our health, it, it is a good option. Fasting um, has been shown in many trials to reduce the risk of um, uh, diabetes risk factors and cardiovascular risk factors. There are a couple of different types of fasting. So we've got the 5-2 or the intermittent fasting diets, um, and that's where you're choosing basically not to eat two or three days a week interspersed by days where you eat what you normally do. So you don't have to so much cut out your cakes and your calories uh, and your, uh, the things that you were doing, um, but, but going through a fasting period and allowing time for your bodies, uh, I guess, to, to be in a, a resting, resting state and not postprandial all the time. And when we're eating all the time, we're putting up our insulin levels and we're putting up a, a number of other levels um, of things. And, and so it's giving that chance for the body to rest. Um, and the other type of fasting that's, um, I guess, a newer kid on the block uh, is um, what I call time-restricted eating. And that's when you're eating- Eat um, as fast as you can. No. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, it's eating for a set period of time per day. So eight, maybe eight hours per day. So you choose to eat between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Um, every day. 
Um, and and that, the consistency or the key to this one is just really eating with the same consistent hours every day. Um, and it probably doesn't matter so much if you choose eight or seven or nine hours, but that you're choosing the same time frame every day to eat. And that's kind of setting your eating patterns in line with your circadian rhythms. So the circadian rhythms are, are, are kind of governed by the brain and the light dark cycle, um, but you're trying to match your food to those rhythms. So it's the reverse Ramadan yes, uh, kind it of is. diet. So yes, you can eat during exactly. the day. Eat during so the, the day, eight hours night. during the day, but you shouldn't eat after six or you choose the time period, but there's a certain time period where you don't eat after. Correct, and that's because our body has clocks as well. So we've got the clock in our brain that's keeping the circadian rhythms going, but we've also got clocks in every tissue in our body and they're really controlled by when we eat. So if you eat at night, you're suddenly activating all of those or uh, changing all of those clocks in your body and then you've got a, a disconnect between the clocks in your head and the clocks in your body and that's uh, a risk factor for disease. So I've got a couple of options uh, for fasting but you, you said it, uh, it, it allows your body to rest. What, what do you mean by that? What, what, are the real, what are the real benefits of, of fasting? Okay, so one of the things that happens when you're fasting is um, a protein uh, called AMPK comes up and this not too technical not now. too yeah, yeah. technical but this AMPK <laughs> comes up um, and what it does is it activates a process called autophagy and that I guess chews up all of the bits that are unwanted or damaged inside your cells and so you're chewing up all of these bits and you're actually using those cellular debris for energy so you're turning that back and you're recycling uh, all of the kind of built up contents in your cells and using them for energy and if you don't do that then you're allowing all of this damage to keep occurring in your cells. So it, is, it, is it then linked with uh, uh, immune, immune problems? I mean, do you reduce immune problems uh, through fasting or I not really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that one. Um, I mean, we've looked at some of the inflammatory responses, so um, not so much immune response, um, but yeah, I guess the inflammation in the body and, and you are, I guess, turning over, turning over those cells and you can dampen the inflammation down. Um, inflammation does come high in, when, you're, when you're overweight and obese. You've got high levels of um, inflammatory cells in your bodies and fasting is dampening those down. Yeah. So which of the two options is, is better or does it just depend on, on personal preference? I think uh, maybe a bit of both. So the fast, we've done mostly more of the intermittent fasting studies and we're just starting to do studies on time-restricted eating. Um, I think 2015 was the first study that came out in mice and so we're just catching up in humans. Um, I think that it depends on your goal. So if you're wanting to do it for health um, and for a really long time, I think circadian, in eating in a circadian way, so that 10 hour, 8 to 10 hour period every day um, is probably more sustainable and, and good for your long-term health. It? It's yeah, not yeah. a big change to what we normally do. People yeah. tend to you actually... miss breakfast and then you're done. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, people tend to eat kind of from the second they get up until the second they go to bed. So people have, you know, a cup of uh, hot chocolate or something at nine o'clock at night. And, and, and so we're eating the entire time that we're awake. Um, and so, but, but just to shorten that a little bit, I think it's quite sustainable. Um, and fasting, uh, the other form of fasting, you know, we show people can do it for six months, maybe 12 months, but a lot of people struggle to do it long term. Yeah, you could, yeah, you tend to dread your fasting days, don't <laughs> you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, what, what about as we get, get older? And uh, so what, what, are the, what are the challenges uh, faced uh, as we age, do we do we still need to eat the same things, or do we change? Do we change what we eat? We change what we need. Yeah. And I think one of the main things that happens as we sort of 
in the seventh decade and beyond is that energy requirements The seventh can. decade. Oh, oh well, yeah. you know. Got something to look <laughs> forward does, to. How does yeah. someone define what older age is, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, I think that's quite subjective. But say 70 plus then, for argument's sake. Yeah. Energy requirements can go down. Um, and this can be linked to a loss in lean body mass, loss of muscle mass that, occur, that can occur with ageing. And it can also be linked to a more sedentary lifestyle. So if you took a man that weighs 70 kilos, aged between 40 and 60, probably need about 10 and a half megajoules per day. But if he was aged 75, that would be reduced by about 16% to about 8.8 mm. 8, 8 .8 megajoules per day. So that's quite a sizable reduction. So mm. that's one thing. But the problem is at the same time, the requirements for protein and vitamins and minerals either stay the same or go up. Right. So as you age, if you want to maintain your muscle mass, it's really important to have enough and also regular protein intake. So it's not about having all your protein in one go. You need to space it out throughout the day and, and also combine that with regular exercise and that will help to maintain your, your muscle mass. And there's an awful lot of research going on at the moment about how to you know, prevent loss of muscle mass and frailty in later life. Mm. And then if we look at the vitamins, we, yeah. we find that um, as we age... Well, let's, do, let's, let's unpack the protein a little oh, okay. bit first. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> What, um, first of all, why, why do we need less, uh, fewer calories as, as we get older? It's just our metabolism slowing down, or why, yes. why is that? Well, if, if someone was less active, then you automatically yeah. need fewer calories, fewer, less energy. But also, there is a tendency to lose lean body mass as you get older. And your lean body mass, or the amount of muscle that you have, is something that determines how many calories you need. Your, what we call your basal metabolic rate. So the more muscly you are, the more <laughs> calories you'll burn when you're, when you're sleeping. So, you know, yeah. get down the gym sort of thing. <laughs> um, but as, as we age, we tend to lose that muscle mass and that lowers our requirement for, for energy. And it's quite substantial. So if people continue to eat as they did before, then sometimes they can start to, you know, to put on weight. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when you do get older, it's not about eating less, it's about eating better. So you, you haven't got room for those discretionary foods that are high in saturated fat and sugar because you need to get the good quality protein in. You need to get all the vitamins and minerals in because our um, ability to absorb vitamins and minerals can reduce with age. And a classic example of that would be vitamin D. We all get it from the sunshine, which is great in this country. But as you age, you're less able to convert it, you know, the vitamins made through your skin, you're less able to do that as you get older. So you do need to get more vitamin D from your diet and or supplements. Yeah. So it's all about good quality, eating um, protein regularly and, um, and perhaps just keeping those discretionary foods for special treats. But the, the other thing I wanted to talk about was oral health, because yep. the, other, the other thing that changes in, in later life is, well, first of all, people can lose their teeth, and that can have a profound impact on the ability to eat the foods that they want to, and that impacts on their quality of life. And we found that um, tooth loss is associated with a lower intake of protein, which mm. of course isn't good for general health, mm. and also a lower intake of fruits and vegetables and fibre. Um, and so that's... So the good foods, you're losing the good foods. Uh, yeah. Oh, they're more difficult to eat. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. So our research at the moment, we're working with denture wearers to find out what their problems are and engaging them to come up with some dietary advice and support that's going to help them eat well in later life and also enjoy their foods more. Hmm. And how much 
I mean, how much protein should we be eating? We hear quite a lot, particularly uh, in, in Australia. Australia it consumes a lot of meat, uh, probably more than we should be doing, yeah. according to World Health Organization mm -hmm. uh, limits. But now I'm hearing from you that I should be increasing the amount of protein as I get older. So what, what, kind, of, what kind of target yeah. uh, uh, should we be aiming for, for, for protein of an elder? Uh, I mean, a good ballpark figure is to have one gram per kilogram body weight. But of course, it, there's so many other factors that can influence individual requirements. I think a good, a good um, guide is to look at the Australian Dietary Guidelines. It gives different serves for different age groups. Okay, so it is, it is partitioned by Age. Yes, yeah, yes yeah. it is. Yeah. And um, so, you know, uh, someone who's sort of my age should be aiming for a good two serves of healthy proteins per day. Um, and are, there, are there other ways of getting protein as well? Can you add protein mix into cakes? I mean, uh, uh, are there alternatives for uh, uh, taking on protein? Most people can get adequate protein through a normal balanced diet, through, through normal foods, and that would be you know, some of the sources that have been alluded to earlier, such as beans and lentils, nuts, um, and, and good quality meat. So um, also dairy, milk, you know, there are an awful lot of different variety um, in sources of protein. Um, in certain older populations who have problems eating due to ill health, then sometimes um, dietitians would use protein supplements or add additional protein to meals. But that's more of a sort of a therapeutic approach yeah. to nutrition as opposed to sort of your normal healthy older person. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. We've been on a, quite an interesting uh, tour of nutrition from uh, pre-pregnancy uh, uh, pre right through to the elder diet uh, as well with some, some choices and uh, some fasting along the way. But I, I just wondered that uh, for, for students coming in to the university, uh, maybe thinking about you know, what, what they're going to be working on at university and doing, uh, what might be some of the, the frontiers of knowledge that uh, the students will be working on in, in a couple of years' uh, time uh, that uh, really uh, are, are challenges for, for your areas? In terms of reproductive health, it's definitely about you know, maternal and paternal health, a combination of both, how that impacts you know, embryo development and also offspring health as well. And there's lots of research going on at the moment about a lot of genetic markers and so on. So that's you know, really exciting research, um, looking at maternal and paternal health in combination. And it's bringing in the, the genomics aspect, which of course is a, is a large and expanding area of Absolutely. knowledge, which is being applied to individual and personalised medicine and then adding in the nutrition. Definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. You might find whether men can be useful as well, whether they have a healthy diet and whether that contributes. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure it's good general so. advice anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah. That's, good. that's right. Um, any, uh, any other thoughts for uh, frontiers of research? Um, well, there's... Um, Coming back to alternative protein foods, um, there's a new alternative protein that isn't yet on the market, but it's being developed. Um, it's called lab-grown meat, and so yeah, lab-grown meat. So it's very expensive, isn't it, at the yes, moment? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's not commercially available yet. Yeah. Um, but we've just started looking at consumers' perceptions or beliefs around um, lab-grown meat and how they think, how they believe it compares to your plant-based protein options. But why, why would people choose lab-grown meat over non-lab-grown meat? It, com 
you know, most people would think it would be completely artificial uh, yep, as, so as, as a product. Lab-grown meat is actually being designed so that it mimics or copies the um, sensory properties of meat. So it's designed to look like meat, taste like meat, sizzle like meat when you cook it, smell. It is meat, but it's... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep, so it's mainly targeted at meat eaters. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you probably, as I mentioned, for vegetarians, um, their main reason for being vegetarian is animal welfare. So because the um, production of lab-grown meat still does involve some animals, they may not, you know, consider that as a, an option for them. And same with vegans. Um, so I think it would just be another protein option to include in your diet if you're choosing to cut back on meat. And potentially a very large market. Uh, yeah, although well. we find that people um, have quite a negative perceptions of lab-grown meat about its health, safety, how affordable it will be, how enjoyable it will be, and also its environmental impact. But the one thing where they see um, it favourably is um, in terms of its animal welfare. So I think it might be better for the animals um, to have lab-grown meat. Great. Jess, Paula, Lenka and Leonie, thanks for being on the Discovery Pod. Thanks for listening to the Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss artificial intelligence.